0: the word of the lord so for the next five weeks over the course of the beginning of the summer we're going to be doing a sermon series on the psalms and this is kind of a unique challenge because the psalms are definitely something that we're always using in worship but very rarely are we preaching them And the Psalms aren't just any old scripture. They occupy a central place in the canon. Literally and figuratively, if you were to randomly try to open your Bible in the middle, boom. You'd find yourself right in the Psalms. And the Psalms are the scriptures that are most frequently referenced by Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament authors. There is no way to overstate their majesty or their significance. What's clear when we approach the Psalms is that we are engaging with something that is monumental and is powerful. Here are just a few summary thoughts of some of the greatest theological minds ever on the content and importance of the Psalms. It is my view that in the words of this book, the whole human life. Its basic spiritual conduct, as well as its occasional movements and thoughts, is comprehended and contained. Nothing to be found in human life is omitted. Those are the words of St. Athanasius of Alexandria, Alexandria in the 300s. Now Martin Luther, he said, The Psalms might be well called a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. It is really a fine manual or handbook for life. Not to be outdone, John Calvin says, In the book of Psalms there is nothing wanting which relates to the knowledge of eternal salvation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, The book of Psalms occupies a unique place in the Holy Scriptures. It is God's word and with few exceptions the prayer of men and women as well. And one last theological voice. The Psalms are really cool. David Berge, 2017. (laughs) And so these powerful testimonies, they only serve to underscore sort of this sense of inadequacy that one feels when approaching the Psalms. How can the words of this preacher do justice to these words which on their own capture so much of the human experience and reveal so much about the character of God? Just another reminder of the necessity of God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. That we need to depend on it consciously and constantly. And so in these next few weeks with the Psalms, it's, it's my hope that, that we can walk away with an understanding of how these words can become our words and how their witness to the reality of the power and presence of God can become our witness to. That the, these words become our words. And so before we dive right into Psalm 100, I think it's helpful to take a moment and, and consider kind of a couple of different conceptual frameworks that we can use when approaching the Psalms. Sort of a, 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 a tip sheet to give when we enter the Psalms so that we know kind of how to navigate the terrain and the territory. And the first framework that I found that was really helpful for thinking about the psalms, it comes from the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. And he says, when you're, when you're reading the Psalms, he says, there's really three different kinds of Psalms. There's 150 Psalms, but there's three different kinds. There's Psalms of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So three Psalms. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Psalms, like Psalm 100, are Psalms of orientation. They, these are ones that state bedrock, foundational theological principles. God is good, God is faithful, God's steadfast love endures forever. These psalms are are, are psalms that reflect, you know, when the world is as it should be. These are our theological givens, our our, our priors, if you will. And then there are, and actually the most numerous, are the psalms of disorientation. What happens when life happens? And those bedrock theological principles are called into question. These are the psalms that ask, God, if you are good, then why do enemies surround me? God, if if you are righteous, then why do the wicked prosper? Why do the poor cry for justice seemingly without answer? And lastly, there are psalms of new orientation. Psalms that express thanksgiving for God showing up in a fresh and unexpected way in a desperate situation. God bringing joy from despair, light from darkness, Hope from sorrow, and so Psalms of New Orientation are, are Psalms of light dawning in the darkness. And so these three categories I think are helpful when we go into the Psalm. They help us see w- w- what is the psalmist doing, and the psalmists also show us ways of speaking to God. and And there are four different ways of speaking to God that we see in the Psalms, and these are four different ways that we speak to each other. First and foremost is Psalms that speak to God, saying, "You're great." praising God, saying, here's why. Next, we say to God, help. We're in a desperate, sticky situation. There's no way out. The psalmist says, help. There's a third way of speaking to God that is maybe the situation feels less desperate, but nevertheless, times are tough, and you, so you say, God, no matter what's happening around me, I trust you. This is like Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Psalms where I say, God, I trust you. And lastly, there are psalms that say, thank you. And these are responses to specific times when God ha- has, has shown up when we were in trouble and helped us out. So as we go into the psalms, I think what's really, really helpful as we engage with them is to think, okay, there's three different types of psalm we can think about orientation, disorientation, new orientation, and four different ways of speaking to God that we see in them. You know, uh, you're great, help, I trust you, thank you. And so my hope is that these frameworks will will help us enter with our hearts and our minds and our imaginations into the worlds of the Psalms, that, that they will provide us with help as we attempt to navigate these beautiful, rich, dense, and evocative poems together. And so our psalm this morning, Psalm 100, is about the how and the why of worship. How we are to worship God and why we are to worship. And it addresses one of the fundamental truths of human existence that is much obscured in our secular age that we all worship. And what we worship will shape our imagination and the way that we live in the world. Every single person has this innate desire to worship someone Or something. And though these are the psalms of the Jewish people, their call is universal. Verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. All the earth is to whom this invitation is issued. Because there is constantly echoing around us these competing calls for our worship. For us to worship someone or something other than God. Right? There's the call of the marketplace that says, Worship here. Come inside the air-conditioned walls of the Mall of America or one of our other uh, cathedrals of consumerism. And here you will experience a near limitless choice to get whatever you want. It's right here. There's a place for fun in your life there's the call of the sports entertainment industrial complex, as I call it, that says, come, come, come worship your heroes here at U.S. Bank Stadium, or the X, or, or for me, Williams Arena. Come, 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 find your tribe. Worship the gods of athletics and success and competition argue about lineups and trades and calls and coaching decisions like the scholastic theologians of old used to argue about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. There's the call of of politics that's getting increasingly louder that says worship party, worship platform, worship politicians who will promise you salvation over the forces of Satan. Satan who just so happen to be wearing an R or a D, depending upon your persuasion. And all of these and more call forth loudly in our daily lives, saying, worship us. Come here. Make us your gods. Give us your praise, your devotion, your time, your talent, your treasure. The desire to worship is innate. Innate. And universal. And so the question now, just as it was 3,000 years ago when Psalm 100 was sung first. Is what or who are we going to worship? The real God or false gods? That's the universal question that prompts this universal call. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. In a world that is full of gods, direct your praise to this one. Because only when we worship this God will our imaginations be shaped in such a way that our lives will reflect truly who we are and how we are supposed to live. It's a truism, I think, that we become what we worship. We take on its character and its traits. And that's why the Psalms are so important. Because if our worship is false, we will become servants of falsehood. But if our worship is true, then we will become agents of truth. And isn't that what the world needs so desperately now? Truth. A world that is filled with madness, fake news, alternative facts. The world desperately needs truth. And so if we all worship someone or something, and true worship is essential to living truthfully, what does that worship look like? And Psalm 100 is very helpful with some answers for us. And so in that taxonomy I mentioned earlier, this is a psalm of orientation, providing bedrock theological principles we will need to overcome when faced with the inevitable storms of life. It's a psalm that gives us words and actions to say to God, you are great, and here's why. And at the heart of this psalm, there are are seven imperative verbs. And imperative verbs are verbs where you're issuing a command, telling someone to go and, and, and do something. And so the psalmist is issuing these seven commandments, basically saying, do this. This is what true worship looks like. Which, with these commands and worship, it leads to a possible objection. How can you command someone to praise something? C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, Reflections on the Psalms, admits that when he first became a Christian and he was reading the Psalms, uh, this troubled him. He said, what kind of a God would command praise besides a tyrant or a dictator? But then he came to an understanding which I think is helpful for us all, he said, Praise is the proper response to God. Just like laughter is the proper response to a good joke. And I don't know any good jokes. So uh, um, Caleb uh, is a master uh, jokester. So, Caleb, do you have a joke for the congregation? Uh, how does Moses make his coffee? Uh, I don't know. How does Moses make his coffee? He brews it. <laughs> So the proper response to such a joke is laughter or groans or some combination thereof. We can't help it. Thank you very much, Caleb. uh putting you on the spot there. Right? Or, or, or delight is just the natural and proper response to a delicious meal. So when we hear a good joke, we can't help but laugh. We eat a delicious food, and we can't help but say, Mmm, that is so good. And so Lewis says... All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, right? You, you, you eat food that's delicious and you immediately say to the person you're eating with, you've got to taste this. You have to try this. And our response isn't to say, well, don't tell me what to do. No, people spontaneously praise what they value. And so, too, they spontaneously invite others to join them in praising. Lewis says, and this is beautiful, praise does not merely express, but completes enjoyment. And that's what's happening with these seven imperatives in Psalm 100. And what are these imperatives, these these commands that the psalmist is issuing? Say, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. Enter his gates. Give thanks. Bless his name. So from these, I just want to say there's there's really I think three things that we see here in terms of what true worship looks like, and the first is that it is noisy. So often when we think of, of sacred spaces and sanctuaries, uh, you know, we think of somewhere dark and somewhere quiet, a place where you step into it and immediately you have to lower your voice to a whisper. Because noise is profane, and you don't want to profane a sacred space. You know, so you want to be able to hear a pin drop. And if you've ever been to a great cathedral, you've probably experienced this. And in some ways, I think in many ways, it's like walking into a library. You don't want to be too noisy because silence is sacred. But the message of Psalm 100 is just the opposite which is good news of people who are parents of young children and bring them to church. And it's a necessary corrective for the church. True worship is noisy, boisterous, and expressive. I think we often miss this because we're so far removed from the temple worship of, you know, thousands of years ago. But it it was less like going to a church service when you went to the temple. And it was more like going to a big, noisy, outdoor barbecue. That was kind of the vibe That was happening. Very different from entering into a library. All right, so true worship is expressive. It's boisterous. It's noisy. And and second thing we see in Psalm 100 is that true worship is holistic. It involves the whole person, uh, you know, mind, body, and, and spirit. And in the Protestant tradition, we are really good at true worship engaging our minds. Know that the Lord is God, it says. And then we'll go, yep, and here is 99 reasons why we can know that God is God. And so our worship tends to be wordy. It tends to focus on the head almost at the expense of everything else because what matters most is getting the correct theology in your head so that you can believe it. But true worship acknowledges that having correct theological imagination involves a whole heck of a lot more than our heads. It includes our bodies making loud noises, using our our, our our voices as instruments, and just the physical act of gathering together in the same place with the same people, week after week after week, right? The invitation is to come to gather. That physical act of gathering together in God's presence is itself an act of worship that cannot be neglected. There's the sights and the sounds and the smells. It includes eating. And this psalm was a psalm of thanksgiving, which means that it was probably sung along as someone brought the, the, the thanksgiving offering, which was an offering that you gave to God just because. And so you brought an animal, and you would slaughter it, and you would give part to the priest, and then there, the people who came with you, you'd just have a picnic, a barbecue, right there in the temple courts. So it was, it was tactile. And true worship includes our spirits too, right? It says, bless God, give thanks to God. So true worship is noisy. True worship includes the body, mind, and spirit. And the last point that I want to make about worship that we see in Psalm 100 is that it is not directed towards a generic idea of a deity or a concept of divinity or higher power. But the God who is the object of true worship has a name. It says, come worship the Lord. And, you know, the Lord is a generic God term in our parlance. But we know when we look in our Bibles, it's got the funny capital letters. So that's God's proper name. Yahweh. The God who is inextricably bound to God's acts. The God who chose Abraham and Sarah to bless the entire world. The God who rescued his people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt when they cried out. The God who gave the law to Moses, the God who anointed David to be king, the God who spoke through the prophets demanding justice flow like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. And as Christians, we know this God in and through Jesus Christ as the one who died for our sins, rose for our justification, and invites us into a kingdom which is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So true worship is our responding to the call of this God and none other. Simply put, what we're doing when we gather for worship is answering an invitation to God's party. He's invited us. We're showing up. And we can't help but respond when we encounter God by saying, You're great. We say a lot of other things. But we say, You're great. So that's what we're doing, and that's what it looks like. But, but, but there's this nagging question of why do we worship this God? And so Psalm 100 is helpful because it doesn't just say, uh, you know, this is what worship looks like, but it also explains why we worship the Lord. And it, has, uh, it contains what I like to call the key phrase of Psalm 100, which if you knew Hebrew, it would be a really funny pun um, because key is the word in Hebrew that introduces an explanatory clause grammar jokes are really funny, um, and this one is included in that as well. The key phrase, get it, key, verse 5, okay. So uh, verse 5, we get to the why of worship, and it says, for, key, that word right there, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So why do we worship God? Why should we listen to these seven imperatives that we're getting? Well, here, these, these are the explanations. God is good, God's steadfast love endures forever, and God is faithful to all generations. These are our bedrock theological principles that will carry us through our entire lives. But the attribute that the psalmist lifts up here that I want to focus on, just this one, is the first, that God is good. Because this seems like the most general, the most generic, the, the easiest one to sort of gloss over. Right, you say God is good, and uh, you know if you grew up in the, some certain churches, you might respond knee jerk. You know, I say God is good, you go all the time, you know, all the time. God is good, but then you don't even think anymore about it. And you know, someone says God is good, you are like, okay, sure, of course. And this word "good" it doesn't it doesn't move us like words like steadfast love or even faithfulness, but it should. And there's this wonderful, wonderful quote from the commentator, James Luther Mays, on this. He says, The adjective good is what the psalm offers as the sole basis for its call to worship. The word seems too simple and too general to serve such a purpose. But it is precisely this common character that makes it appropriate here. In all their languages, human beings organize their discriminating responses to what they experience in every sphere of life by the word word pair good-bad. good bad calling good that which enhances existence with any particular sphere. Israel came to know its God as good in an absolute sense sense in every sphere, in all his ways in all his words. We worship God because God is good. In Hebrew, God is tov. God is absolute light, love, life, beauty, and truth. And so when we worship this God in this way, we are remade more and more to bear and reflect that divine image that is imprinted on each and every human being from birth. More and more of our own tov goodness emerges. And if you can remember all the way back, if some of you were here, to the uh, beginning sermon series on Genesis when God is constantly speaking this word good, tove, over creation. You know, more and more of our capacity for life embedded within us by God is springing forth with the seeds of future life in it. That's what happens when we worship God, as Jesus says, in spirit and in truth. So, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, this psalm is an invitation to each and every one of us to say to God, You're great because you're good. And this call to worship is universal because the human impulse to worship is universal. And so the question isn't will we worship, but who will we worship? And how will we worship? And Psalm 100 invites us to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, and the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because God is good, God's love is steadfast, and this God's faithfulness will last forever. This is the core of our theological imaginations as Christians. And so, that no matter how disoriented we might become, no matter how buffeted about we are by life, we will never forget that this God, good, faithful, Steadfast God is our north star, our guiding light. And though we might move everywhere, that is our fixed point upon which we keep our eyes and where our hope and our trust rests. Though we might change, God won't be changed. God will still be the God who calls us into his presence with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. But the real challenge of Psalm 100 is this. That we hear this not just as a call addressed to us. But that the voice of the psalmist becomes our voice as well. Inviting all the earth to respond just as we have. That we go from being invited to those issuing the invitation to come and see. Or in the words of Psalm 34, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so over this next month or so that we're spending with the Psalms, uh, there's actually a couple of apps that you can get on your phone that will take you through the entire Psalter, all 150 Psalms in one month. This is a really good exercise to do. It's an ancient Christian tradition still today all over the world. On Those who are in monastic or intentional communities make it a point, almost all of them, to, 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 to read the entire Psalter, all 150 Psalms in the next every month. And so if you just, you know, go to your app store, the Google Play store or the Apple app store, you can look up daily prayer and uh, down about five or six, there's either there's the PCUSA daily prayer app, which is like um, maroon uh, with a Celtic cross. That's a great resource. Or there's one uh, from the Church of England uh, that will get you through the entire book of Psalms in a month. And I think it would be a great discipline for us to engage in as a congregation over the course of this next month to be reading these Psalms, praying through them. And as you're reading the psalms, ask, well, what kind of psalm is this? Orientation, disorientation, new orientation. And say, what is the psalmist saying right now? You're great, help, I trust you, or thank you. And then look at your own heart and your own life and go, when have I been there or am I there? Or when have I said that? Or how can I be saying that now? How can I say these same words to God? Because the more we live, breathe, sing, and pray the psalms, the more we will know who God is. And in turn, the more we will know who we truly are and who God is calling us to be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.